Let's take our Bibles, please, and uh, <coughs> first reading. Our first reading will be in Mark's Gospel in chapter 14. And what we are doing is <coughs> following what we've already done, but we will be joining them and their the Lord Jesus and the disciples in their journey from the upper room <coughs> to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we are going to learn the lessons which the Lord Jesus taught them during that journey. There are three major lessons. We're on our second one today. Now, they're very tired. It's very, very late at night. They're very confused, very concerned, and the atmosphere is really very poignant and very heavy, and Satan is drawing near. What we're going to do in our study and consideration is we're going to look at the reality of Satan's attacks the reality of them on the people of God. And then in such attacks to discover again the frailty of our own flesh, our own weakness and inability in ourselves to withstand, but to to see the, the comfort and the support which comes from the prayers of the Lord Jesus at times like that in our lives. <clears throat> and ultimately to realize that whatever happens, Whatever situation, whatever circumstance, however Satan may buffet us, the truth is that good always comes as a result of such trials. So that's what we're going to learn. Now let's just firstly read the scriptures together. Mark chapter 14 and verse 26. They sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, And Jesus said, All ye shall be offended or stumbled because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. We consider that in detail, the lesson from that. We won't go over that. Verse 29. Peter said, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Jesus said, Verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this very night, before the cock shall crow twice, before you've heard the rooster twice with its morning call, you shall deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently. If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise, Also said they all. I want you to notice that. They all took the same stance and genuinely so, genuinely so. They were appalled at what they heard. But have a look now at Luke 22, Luke's record. When Luke tells you the same story as the other gospel writers, he always seems to add a a certain touch to it, a little bit more detail that brings it even more alive. Because in Luke 22... This is how it begins in verse 31. Luke 22 and verse 31. This is how it starts. The Lord said, now just picture this, they're they're going through the night, it's very late at night, and what lies ahead is, is really quite overwhelming, and they're so uncertain and shaken in their own faith and You know, they're so vulnerable, really, the disciples. And then the Lord suddenly just says on the way, Simon, 
Simon. Behold, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. Now that's an ominous statement. It's quite fearful. I mean, when you're at your highest or your strongest, it would be something quite overwhelming. But, you know, here's Peter at his lowest, if you like. The poor man suddenly hear these words. Satan has desired to have you, and he may sift you as wheat. <clears throat> but I'm not going to let him. No, he doesn't say that. He says, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. There's some beautiful lessons in that for us. Great comfort. When thou art converted or restored, strengthen thy brethren. The blessing that will come, the lesson you'll learn, you'll be able to pass it on, as it were, as a blessing and a comfort for others. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee, both to prison and to death. He said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny, three times you will deny, that you even know me. <clears throat> well, let's go to verse 53. The Lord Jesus is just, the soldiers have come and they've arrested him. <clears throat> And I want you to get the picture. They've come out, numbers of them, with swords and staves. He says to them, verse 53, When I was daily with you in the temple, you didn't stretch out your hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is a time when the forces of evil, under the direction of Satan himself, will unleash their worst against the Lord Jesus and against his disciples <clears throat> and a particular ominous warning for Simon, Simon, the apostle, Simon Peter. They took him, the Lord Jesus, and they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. <clears throat> and Peter followed afar off. I get the picture of it all. When they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, they were set down together, and Peter sat among them. But a certain maid, a serving girl, she beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied, saying, Woman, I know him not. A little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. Peter said, Man... I am not. And about the space of one hour after, another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow was also with him. He's a Galilean. Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. Just capture the drama of that moment. You know, there's this crowd there, hostile crowd, and on one, as it were, one end of that court, there's the Lord Jesus, 
surrounded by those who've come to arrest him and they're going to put him to death before the next day's out. That's what they're going to do. They're plotting, they're planning, they're sorting it out. Over the here are the all sorts of people in sympathy, all hostile to the Lord Jesus. And over there, you can see the Lord Jesus standing amongst his captors. And over here, there's Peter warming himself by the fire. And then this, this crisis comes. And just as the Lord predicted, so Peter falls. And three times he says, I don't even know who this man is. And as he says that, you know, the rooster crows. And Peter must have got a stab like a knife going through him. He remembers the words of the Lord Jesus and he, he suddenly looks up to where the Lord Jesus is and the Lord Jesus is looking directly at him. And across that room of hostility, their eyes meet. And I think for a moment of the look of his face on the face of the Lord Jesus. And then I turn and I look and I think of the face of the poor apostle stumbling Peter. And I see it bathed in tears. I see it. He's been stabbed in his conscience. And you can imagine him thinking, oh, what have I done? And across his face go those emotions chasing themselves one after the other. There's grief there. There's, there's remorse there. There's despair there. There's guilt there. And then, thank God, there's repentance there. It's a face that's bathed in tears. He's done this tremendous wrong. He's made a terrible mess of it. He's let his Lord down so decisively at the crucial moment. And with a breaking heart, it says, he goes out and he weeps bitterly. You know, the enormity of his failure and of his sin actually overwhelms him. You know, you've got to feel sorry, haven't you? But I tell you something. There's always hope for a man or a woman who will weep because of their sins. If I was a painter, I'd just love to paint that picture that I've started to introduce you to with words, you know. It would be Peter here and the Lord there and the crowd around. Mixture, but all rebellion, all all hating and hostile. (coughs) And then the one Peter looking at the Lord Jesus. And I would paint Peter's face, you know, just bathed in those tears. But to try and reproduce the look on Peter's face, you know, I could only do that accurately, as accurately as I myself have known what it is to actually weep because of sin. If I understood my own sinfulness and I've learnt to weep about it, I'd be able to paint Peter's face very, very well, I think. I think I could capture a little bit of it, for I've denied him too. And I understand the fear and cowardice, and I understand the sinfulness and the weakness of my own heart and flesh, and who I really am just left on my own. And I think I could draw that picture, and I could put those tears just where they belong, and I could watch him as he turns and and goes out of the room weeping bitterly with a sense of guilt and grief. And then at the other end there would be the face of the Lord Jesus, but I dare not paint that picture. I couldn't. I just couldn't possibly do it, you see. I mean, what what was there? There was something in that look of the Lord Jesus that brought Peter to where he was, the point of weeping and repentance and realisation and reality. But for me to attempt to portray the face of Christ at that instant, never. You see, was there dismay there? 
was there just a look that was so powerful that it pierced Peter through with conviction or was there that look of sadness and that look of sense of grief and real sorrow as he saw his disciple fall? Was there that look of pity? Was there compassion? Was there grace? Was it all of them? But what I do know is this, that at that instant in time, as he looked upon his stumbling follower, his heart went out to him, and all the feelings of the divine heart towards a stumbling sinner at that instant was perfectly expressed in the human face of Christ. Now that's a marvel and a mystery. And all the feelings of the heart of God for stumbling sinners was for a moment expressed in that look, mingled with all the grief of his own humanity and the tragedy of what had happened. And it was sufficiently powerful, and so it is, to break Peter's heart. And I tell you, my friend, if you could catch a glimpse of the heart of God and of the face of Christ over sinners who have stumbled and who need salvation, it would melt your heart to tears as well. I think of that old hymn we used to sing and it was so much a favourite when we were much, much younger. Indeed, when I was in my 20s and a bit later, 30s, I had a LP record of uh, two children, Elaine and Derek, two children singing The Stranger of Galilee. And we used to play it over and over. One of the verses says, His look of compassion, his words of love, they shall never forgotten be when sin sick and helpless He found me there, that stranger of Galilee. You can't paint that. You couldn't paint that. Only Peter knew what it meant, yet we touch it as we read the scriptures here this morning, and now we go back and we start to learn the lessons. So we stay in Luke and chapter 22, and how does it begin? First of all, just think of what was the response here. The Lord has told them that lying ahead there would be a great trouble and lying ahead of them they would be indeed scattered. But there's a very confident statement which they all make. They all avow the fact that they're not going to go astray. They're not going to forsake him. They're even prepared to die for him. Right. It's a statement that's overconfident. You get that? It's a statement where they think within themselves There is sufficient strength to face the coming trauma and trial and attack of the power of darkness and the activities of Satan. Indeed, it's a a self-confidence, therefore it's a false confidence. Self-confidence is always false confidence. And in today's world, it's very much, very easy for all of us to actually think too much of ourselves. And then you'll end up taking too much on yourself. And then you'll find, find out that you're way out of your depth and you're actually beyond your capacity. It's the spirit of the day. Self-confidence always goes beyond the limits of faith. And the truth is, the true believer realizes his own weakness and he leans on God and he walks humbly with his God. For those of us who are parents and we're bringing up families, don't make the mistake of bringing your children up overconfident because it will be a self-confidence. 
We are told to tell them always how good they are and what they can do, and very often they can't do it. We heap praise on them because they've done something so well, where in actual fact so often they have not done it well at all. It's not that you don't encourage and you don't support, but you'll end up pushing them beyond their capacity and they will fall because they're learning self-reliance and not trust, humility and God-reliance. 1 Corinthians 10, the apostle says to us all, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he should fall. And I would never stand here and speak against Peter and when he fell because if I was in that place, I don't know if any of us would have been even got that far as to have followed the Lord Jesus even to the high priest's palace. Be not high-minded, says Paul, says in the Roman epistle, but fear. In other words, move in the fear of God, in the sense of your own weakness and dependence, where you look above to draw your strength. And as the psalmist said, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Now, there's a lot of argument with the expositors as to what that means, presumptuous sins. But it's presuming to go beyond your capacity or to take things upon yourself for which you are not ready or fitted or capable. It was a word that was used about the prophet who stood up and he told the people, I've got a message in the name of the Lord. And he speak as speaking on behalf of God, the word of God, whereas in actual fact he didn't have a message at all. And it was held that he had sinned presumptuously. He'd gone beyond his capacity and taking up something that he was not capable of handling himself. It was his word and not the word of God. You see, the whole thing <coughs> genders pride, and that's the enemy of humility. And God hates the proud. It says, actually, he dwells with the meek and the contrite spirit. And the one that trembles at his word, it's like the little child that we were thinking of this morning, the little child. You see a child, a little child full of himself? herself it's not that they know they don't know they're constantly looking they're constantly trusting they're constantly asking you see the little one constantly looking to the parent to check to just make sure it's all right to get that reassurance to put out the hand that they can be led and to feel the comfort of having their hand in the hand of someone else who knows that's the pathway for the true believer and the true child of god it's not one of self-confidence now Peter is singled out particularly in, his, uh, in the conversation that goes on. <clears throat> he's the one that speaks more vehemently. He's like us all. He's just got this sense of, I can do it. And I can do it because I've got it in me to do it. He's as impulsive as a thunderstorm, one expositor says, as he speaks more vehemently. Well, we can all relate to that. But you look at the story now in verse 31. Simon, Simon. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you as weak. Now, that's, at that juncture, that would have been the most ominous sort of thing that the warning is just fraught with terror almost. Because the Lord says Simon is, Satan is going to attack you. And not only is Satan going to attack you, but he's going to be allowed to attack you. And when he attacks you, what he's going to do, he's going to sift you 
like wheat. In other words, he's going to go through you and through you and through you, and he's not going to leave you alone. You see, the notion of sifting of wheat, mind you, the notion of sifting of wheat is it's sifted to get rid of the bad in order that it might be preserved the good. But when Satan does the sifting, he wants to get rid of the good in order that he might foster the bad. You see, when you sift wheat, you, you know, it's cut down, the sheaf is cut down, and it's laid on the ground, and it's threshed. You know, there's a beating in it, and a, a constancy of beating in it, in order to get the grain separated from the ears, and it goes on and on and on and on and on, until so all of it's got out, and then all that grain is taken, and it's, it's sifted over, it's threshed, it's the, the chaff has got out of it, it is thrown up in the air, the wind blows away the chaff, it's done again and again and again, and then it's sifted and sifted and cleaned and purified to get rid of everything. It goes on and on and on till the real thing comes out of the other end. Now what the point is, the point is this, the Lord is saying, Satan's going to take you and put you through that pounding and that sifting and that standing you on your head upside down, if you like. He's going to go through you and through you and through you. And fellow believer, fellow Christian, when Satan attacks one of the people of God, he's out. it is a most fearful experience, and he's out to only to destroy and to hurt and to do away with everything that's good and to destroy our faith, and he knows absolutely no mercy whatsoever. He will not stop. He is relentless. And as Peter's going to write later on in his epistle, he said, you, you be uh, vigilant, he said, be, be watchful for your adversary, the devil, walks around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And if you were, were next to Peter when he wrote that that day, you say, what do you want to write that for, Peter? He says, oh, I've been there, I've done that. I tell you, I know exactly what it's like. Now let's look at the way Satan attacks the people of God. <clears throat> Has he attacked Peter here? There's many instances in scripture we could go to, all right? But I want you to take you to think about Job. He's an outstanding example of Satan attacking one of the children of God. And then you've got the Apostle Paul, another incredible example. And then, of course, you've got the one here, Peter. And there are lessons to learn when you, you think about this, Satan going to attack. You never know when he's going to attack, all right? You never know. And you never know how he's going to attack. You never know when he's going to attack. Often he does attack the believer when, he's, when you're at your lowest, and he does do that. You know, sometimes we're all emotional. We all have our ups and downs. We've all got physical things. We've got mental things. We've got emotional things. We've got moods and happenings. And we've got weariness and all that kind of thing. And very often at the point when you're at your lowest, when you, you're feeling actually quite overwhelmed, Satan sees you there and he thinks, I'll get him right now, and he moves in. Right? Now, it's not always like that because you think of a man like Job. Job wasn't at his lowest when Satan attacked him. Job was at his peak, actually, right? He was at the peak of his career. He really was. I mean, he couldn't have had it better. He was wealthy, right? He had enormous social standing. People stood up when he walked by. They came and asked him for his advice. He was respected. He was really at the top. His family life was absolutely wonderful. You know, they were getting on together. The sons and the daughters, seven sons and the three daughters. It was a marvelous setup. Everything was going really well. He was praying for them. You go to his flocks and he had 7,000 sheep and he had 3,000 camels and he had 500 oxen and 500 she-asses. It says he was the greatest of all the men in the east, right? And then Satan decides he's going to attack. The Lord says, have you seen my servant Job? Look at him, look. 
There he is. The devil says, oh, I'm going to attack that man and you'll soon see what becomes of him. We'll come to that in a moment, right? So he can attack you when you're at your peak. He can attack you when you're at your lowest. You think of the Apostle Paul, and that's quite a remarkable one because a messenger of Satan came to Paul to buffet him, right? I mean, it was an incredibly bitter experience for the man. It was so bad that he cried out to the Lord, please take it away, and he did it three times, begging the Lord for it to go because it was... Satan was buffeting him. I mean, the man had enough problems. But it actually came to him at the peak of his spiritual experience. Remarkable, that. He tells a story of how he says, I know a man in Christ. He's talking about himself. And he says, I'm not sure whether I was in the body or whether I was out of the body. But he said, this man in Christ was caught up into heaven. He said he was caught up even to paradise right into the joys and blessings of the presence of God, and he heard unspeakable words. In other words, words that, you know, it's not lawful for a man to utter. Because he says, I I can't put into words the glory of what I saw and the things that went on there and the joy unspeakable that was in the presence of God. He said, it's not something that can be expressed and really it's not something that should be expressed now because we couldn't appreciate it just down here on earth. But I touched it for a minute while I was up there in heaven. Now notice that, by the way, people write books today about the fact they've been to heaven and come back again. And they could put it all in words and tell a great long story. Paul says, I went there and I tell you, I was just overwhelmed and I saw unspeakable things. Be careful. There's all sorts of venturers in all sorts of places. Right. He goes up and he does that at the peak of his experience And then it says, and I received a messenger, the next verse in verse 7, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. You think, wow, that's incredible. He comes at the peak of experience. Here, Peter, it's slightly different, isn't it? I mean, poor Peter. He's at the point of crisis in his entire life of discipleship, this man is. He's at the most difficult, one of the most difficult situations he will ever, ever face. I mean, his whole world is crashing down around him. The last thing he needed was for Satan to attack. So fellow believer this morning, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, right, as a roaring lion, eh, he's ready to devour and his attacks are absolutely destroying and devastating. Job, he lost everything in one day. You think about that. If ever there's a picture of a man that's going through tribulation, trouble and burdens, it's the story of Job. He lost his flocks, didn't he? The Sabaeans, the enemies, came and slew all, the, all these shepherds and took the flocks away. And, and then he loses his uh, camels to the Chaldeans. And then he loses another portion to the oxen and the ashes, the sheep, I should say, to the fire which comes down from heaven. And if that's not enough, as they're telling him all these terrible things on the same moment, another man comes in and says, there came a tremendous wind and all your children were together as a family enjoying one another's friendship and the house fell and the, the children are gone. And the poor man just sits there and the devil says, oh, I haven't finished with this fellow yet. He says, I'll put my hand and I'll ruin his health. And when you read the story of Job, you see a picture of a man just so burdened. So overwhelming. I mean, I don't think any of us have been where Job's been. You know, let's stop complaining, all right? Just stop complaining. None of us have been where Job has been. And then you see, he's so ruthless. You think of Paul. 
I mean, there he's going to attack the man. He's just been up to heaven, as it were. And not only that, he's had enough problems in his life. He's got perils everywhere. He's got beatings. He's got imprisonment. He's got hunger. He's got cold. He's got perils in the sea. He's got perils in the land. He's got perils from being amongst robbers. And now a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. And so ruthless is Satan that Paul's caused to cry out. I mean, he's used to hardship. He's suffered so much. But this was more than he could cope with, he says. And so for three times he asked the Lord to take it away. You see, and then there's Peter, Satan's going to come. But you know, get this picture, will you get this behind it all? In every one of those cases with Peter, Job, and with Paul, the whole thing in that trial and attack was allowed by God. Always remember whatever circumstances come into your life, they are allowed by God. Whatever's happening now, wherever you're at now, you are in God's hands. And he is allowing it to happen. And actually to realise that in times of distress is the first step to coping. To realise you're in God's hands and he's allowed it to happen. That's what we talked about, sovereignty of God today. All things are in his hand and he is over all. It's the first step to getting peace. Because when you realise that you're in God's hands and he's allowing the circumstances to happen, you do start to just transcend all your troubles. No, I don't mean you'll suddenly start singing the Hallelujah Chorus and turning cartwheels all day on the street all night. No, no, no. But something within you will change. And you'll be able to face the enemy, as it were, full on and say, if God be for me, who can be against me? I can be more than a conqueror through him that loved me. And when you realize that you're in God's hands and every circumstance is God allowed, you rise beyond the immediate and Satan can't destroy you or your faith. That's what he wants to do. Peter, the Lord says, I'm praying for you so that your faith does not fail. Peter didn't fail. Job didn't fail. Paul didn't fail. If God be for us, who can be against us? Realize, number one, you're in God's hands. Realize, number two, there is always a reason behind the trial. You might say, well, why is this happening? There's always a reason behind the trial. Why did not the Lord stop Satan getting Peter? There was a reason behind the trial. Job, there was a reason behind the trial. Peter, there's a reason. Paul, there's a reason. Let's look at Job. Because they're all different and they're all magnificent. Job was put through this trial, but I'll tell you something, you can read the whole book of Job and how horrible it is and how devastating it is. And the fact is Job never knew the reason. Right? He never did. There are some things, fellow Christian, you will never understand in this life. You will not always get a clear reason and an answer as to why. There was a reason and Job never did knew it. If you never knew what that reason was, if you read through the chapters of Job and listen to what he says, he is desperately looking for the reason. He's asking God, come and talk to me, he's saying, really. If I could only find you, 
I would reason with you and explain to you that this doesn't make any sense. And what's happening to me is not something I've done. I haven't caused it and I don't deserve it. And if someone said he was saying, why in the world is this happening to me? But the reason for it didn't lie in this world, you see. This is something really quite profound. The reason lay in the secrets of the unseen world of God. It lay in the unseen spiritual world where there is wickedness in high places. God and Satan, as it were. God in his own way was working out his purposes against Satan through his servant Job. I'll tell you what was really going on. God was demonstrating for all and for the powers of evil that when he does a work in the heart of a man, a work of faith, and makes him one of his children, Satan can do what he likes, but God's work will never break down. That soul will never be broken and destroyed. He will never again be taken under the power of Satan. And Job's, Satan says to God, Job is your child because you were good to him. Let me get at him and take away your goodness to him and he'll break down and he'll curse you to your face and he'll become one of mine all over again. God says, go ahead and see. And Job stood through the worst of the worst. For I tell you, fellow believer, the work of God in your soul can never be undone, not even by the power of the devil himself. None can pluck them out of my hand. Do you see that? None can pluck them out of the hand of my Father. And if in your soul there is a true work of God and you're a new creature in Christ and you're born again, a work of faith, and you are a child of God, the devil can bring, the devil and hell can do its worst, but nothing will change. You are his, I am his, and he is mine forever and forever. And Job's trial demonstrated for all of us, even through today, written on the pages of Scripture, the invincibility of the work of God in the heart of a man of faith. Understand that. Satan's never going to prevail, you know. Never, in any way, is he ever going to prevail. He's not going to get one of God's people back under his control. He's not going to destroy one single one of God's children or of God's sheep. Never. God will build his church. He'll build them one by one as he plants the truth of faith into the heart of a sinful soul and makes him his own. And the gates of hell will never prevail against God's building program. Never. Now, Job is all part of that, you see. And things go on in life that we don't understand. They're to do with God. And in a coming day, he reveals it. So if you don't understand, that's the whole point, just resting God. I mean, Paul, the apostle, as he had this terrible situation, he actually did for know the reason. Do you know what the reason was? You can read it in, in 2 Corinthians there. It just says, the Lord said to him, excuse me, Paul, I won't do what you said. Satan will continue to do what you do, what he does, because he said it could be that you might become exalted above measure. In other words, he becomes proud. You say, oh, well, you know. <laughs> that, not, not the Apostle Paul. I tell you what, if the Apostle Paul is guilty of pride and a pride that would undo his entire usefulness for God, then you and I are more than, more than capable of it. That's for sure. And you know, that was it. If we get proud... The truth is, your usefulness for God is over. It'll be ruined. 
The minute there's self in what you're doing, the minute there's self in what you're doing, the minute there's even self in your praying, the minute I stand here and there's self in my preaching, all right? I've marred my usefulness for God and spoiled the power of God in what we're doing. And there's so much that we do that's got self in it. And really it ruins the reward in a coming day. To be seen of men. That's the key. People that serve, you serve, I serve. And really we're wanting to be praised for it or recognized for it. Oh, recognition is so important to us. I mean, people don't even see me for who I am. Or respect me in the church. Oh, how terrible. But you see, it's self. That's what it is. And then when that pride thing comes in, when you're exalting yourself, you're not exalting the Lord. You're just not, you can't do two together. And you're robbing the Lord of a place that he should have. For all glory belongs to him. And God forbid that we should glory in anyone else or in anything else save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see... (coughs) Paul realized the big reason, and it was to keep him from the sin of pride. And Peter, well, the truth about Peter is his faith was having to be purified. That thy faith fail not. Because he had that in that, that faith, he had the mixture, didn't he, of self-reliance, of self-confidence. He had the mixture of ignorance. He had the mixture of fear. And we've got exactly the same thing. Self-confidence sometimes. Stupidity others. <laughs> Very true. Ignorance. We don't know that we don't know, so therefore we think we know. Ever felt like that? Ever found that out? You thought you knew. (laughs) And then you got there and you found you didn't. But oh, you said an awful lot about it. And then you looked at your fellow believer going through troubles and you, oh, you had all the answers, didn't you? Don't we? And all the criticisms as well. And then the trouble comes to us exactly the same and you think, oh dear, I didn't know it would be like this. Be very careful. You never stood in that man's shoes. And you never saw things through that man's eyes. And very often when we criticise one another, what we're doing is actually exalting ourselves because in a weird and wonderful way we're saying, well, I wouldn't have been doing it that way. I'd be doing it this way. And so the whole thing goes, as I may I put it, completely pear-shaped. But let's understand it. There is a reason. And the outcome is absolutely wonderful. The outcome is our good and our blessing do you know what happened to, to the outcome of Job's trial? Have you ever thought what the outcome was? You say, yeah, well, he got more money. He got, he got more prosperous. He got just as many children. And he got all of his cattle back. He can doubled it. And he got his asses back and the camels back and they were doubled. And wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you know the greatest blessing and outcome that came from that? Is that God was vindicated and glorified. I tell you, if out of your trial there comes glory for God, you've really got the point. You see, his work stood. Satan was defeated. And the record of scripture is there forever. God himself, richly, um, Job himself, richly blessed with health and family. But more than that, more than that, for could we just rid our minds of the fact that Blessing is equal to me being happy, me being rich, me being content, me being safe, and me not having any troubles. I tell you what, that could be the greatest curse from hell. It's not like that. The Christian life isn't like that at all. But out from this there came something more wonderful than mere replacement of what he lost. Job himself was a better man. 
He was a, he really, his character grew. His knowledge of God grew. His attitude to God and to life and to understanding completely changed. He learned God and he learned himself. He got to the point where he trusted God unquestioningly. He put his hand on his mouth and said, I won't ask any more questions. I won't demand any more answers. I will stand still. I will keep quiet. I will trust him in my ignorance. I will trust him in the dark. I will stand and I will just let God be God. Martin Luther's famous phrase. Are you arguing with God this morning? Stop. Put your hand on your mouth. Let God be God. That's exactly what he did. He came to the point, he says, look, I am finite. God is infinite. I am mortal. God is immortal. I'm just a man. God is eternal. He's far above me. I will let God be God, he said. I'll say nothing more. Oh God, he said, you can be hindered in no thought of yours. Everything you choose to do, you can do. And all that you have done is so far above me, whereas I repent. I abhor myself. Imagine that. Now, when you can get to that, you start to think little of yourself. I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Do you know what abhor means? He says, the actual meaning of the word is, I melt myself into nothingness. And he turned and he gave the glory to God. Like the psalmist of old, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Fellow believer, we're in God's hands. Please, we're in God's hands. There is a reason for everything we all go through. There is blessing that comes out of it. It came out of it for Job. It came out of it for the Apostle Paul. Do you know what he found out? He found out my strength's made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for thee. He, he just learned that if he leaned on the Lord, if he walked with the Lord, if he depended on the Lord, if he trusted in the Lord, and he never trusted in himself, and he never lifted himself up in pride, he learned there was sufficient supply from the blessed Lord himself to enable him to face what Satan may do. And he got to the point where he says, I glory in my infirmities because then the power of Christ rests upon me. Then when I am weak, then am I strong. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now look, the strength to live as a Christian and to serve the Lord as a Christian does not lie in yourself. It lies in God. And it's a life of looking to God, of leaning on God, of resting of God, of constant prayer and dependence, not of independence, of humility. And when we've exhausted all our own strength, we'll find that our Father's forgiving has only just begun. And so, because of time, I'll stop there and I'll read those lovely words. When we have exhausted our stores of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. 
Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy load, will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. We can be more than conquerors through him that loved us. May the Lord lift us this morning and let us put our hand in the right place. Let us put our eyes in the right place. Let us put our trust and faith entirely in him and in him alone. Amen. Father, we are blessed truly as we read the scriptures and we see the exhortations and we see the examples and we prove afresh the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do pray this morning, Father, that as we've read these verses of scripture and thought upon Peter and the awful situation he was in, our hearts may learn the lessons of trust and faith. Know the peace that comes beyond all understanding. Even when we do not understand there is a peace that transcends our ignorance and our fears. And, O oh God, for any who have not known anything about this, we pray, may the blessing of God rest upon us all as we part this morning and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, such grace, and the love of God, such infinite love, and the fellowship, the help of the Holy Spirit, be our blessed portion as we return and give God thanks and together we say Amen.